0: And let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we have just sung of the love we have for you. Father, it's not a love that we intuitively have. It's not something that is produced within us by the sheer force of our will. But Father, we know that we love You because You first loved us. Father, that love is shown in the truth that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That You demonstrated Your love in that truth. And so, Father, we have sung and confessed that we love you, but we also must confess, Lord, that it is only by your grace that we love you. And so as we have sung of the glories of salvation, of how You shed Your love abroad to us in the shedding of the blood of Your Son. Father, it is a time for us to reflect upon that great act of love. And Father, to turn to Your Word today and to see how You lovingly call us to live out that love every day in our lives. There is no greater gift that can be given than that of your Son, Jesus Christ. And you have given Him in full measure. You have united us to Him by faith so that now, as we will see, you do not see our unrighteousness. You see Christ's righteousness. So, Father, as we are lavished with grace, we ask, Lord, that you would provide more grace to us this morning, that there would be waves of grace from your word as it pinpoints the wrong thoughts, the wrong attitudes, the wrong actions, the wrong loves in our heart. Father, may you draw our hearts to love you more as we look to your word today. We pray these things in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. If you take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, and we are continuing on looking at the path of a pilgrim. And this morning, I want us to particularly focus on verses 13 through 18, but the main point we're going to be looking at is verses 17 through 18. We're going to be reading verses 13 through 18 as sort of a point of review, but I think it's important to look back to see what Peter is saying in verse 18 to sort of provide the context for us of what he's saying. We just read a psalm of David where he laments the difficulties and the enemies that he's facing. And in fact, many of the Psalms, in fact, the majority of the Psalms, there are more Psalms of lament than there are of any other type of Psalm in the Psalter. And David there is is lamenting being treated unfairly, unkindly, unjustly by people who he admitted prayed for, people who he mourned when they were sick. And it's appropriate that we read that passage. And I didn't. it's, it's just always amazing to me how God providentially works things out. Uh, because I wasn't planning to, to look at that passage in, in reference to what we have here. It just happened because Peter is focusing on the same thing that we as pilgrims face. Injustice, being treated unfairly, being hated and mocked and abused. And it's easy for us in the world in which we live... To feel like there's nothing good going on. David gives expression of this in Psalm 4. In Psalm 4, he is expressing to some extent his own frustration, but also recognizing that there are a multitude of other people who are saying the same thing. There are many who say, "...who will show us some good." And boy, we live in a world today that is desperate to see goodness in it. There's lots of different ways that people have sought to find good in the world in which we live. In fact, there's a famous quote from The Lord of the Rings. And in that, in that book and in the movie, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien seeks to answer this question by looking... Not to the right answer, but by looking deeper within man. There's a scene in The Lord of the Rings where Sam and Frodo, who are seeking to take the ring back to Mount Doom and to destroy it, they are, have been dealing with just setback after setback, and they don't seem like they're any closer to the goal that they've set out to do than they were, than they began. There was a, a battle that had been done, and there was evil sort of all around them. And so Frodo, who's taking the ring to Mount Doom, after enduring countless trials and difficulties, seemingly getting nowhere, he exclaims to Sam, his companion, that he can't do the task that he's called to do. Sam agrees. He says, I know, Mr. Frodo. And he goes on to speak of how in tales of old people Would hold on to something when things seem to get the darkest. Frodo looks at Sam in this scene, and and it's very dramatic in the movie. There's dramatic music playing, and and you see, you see the the good guys in different battles beginning to win victories. and, And he says, Frodo says to Sam, what they were holding on to. And Sam replies that there is some good in this world, and it's worth fighting for and it's a seminal moment in the movie it's just it's so dramatic and it, and it and everyone as you're watching there if you're in the theater if you're watching at home you're like yes that sounds right but here's the problem it's a lie so we have to just a little little freebie sermon you can't ever turn off your discernment when you're in taking or, or consuming entertainment Everything is preaching something to you. Sam's answer is a lie. Sure, it makes for riveting cinema. And it plays into our desire for the good guys to win over the bad guys. And frankly, it's a lie that's easy for us to believe. I mean, who doesn't want to see goodness in humanity, right? But it's a lie. And we see that the, David points us to where we are to look for goodness in a world gone bad. And notice what he says. Lift up the light of your face upon us, the Lord. David recognizes that in a world that has gone bad, goodness is not found by looking within, but by looking to the Lord. By finding hope and goodness in him alone. So look with me in first Peter chapter three, and we'll begin our reading at verse thirteen. Notice what Peter says Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is what's the next word? Good. Who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? Maybe put to shame. And then we have this statement that Peter makes it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. It's interesting that verses 13 through 17 are bookended with this concept of good. But yet, that seems antithetical that if we are doing good, why would we suffer? For that good. Our our natural response would be shouldn't we be rewarded for doing good? Isn't isn't that the way we think of things? We do good and, and we should receive good. And see, this shows us the reality that lies in the hearts of all of us, including believers, is that we have a tendency to look for goodness in ourselves. And what we're going to see Peter doing in verse 18, and I I think this is clearly what he's trying to do. What is good? What does it mean to have or to find goodness? And in verse 18, he points us to the greatest good. He says it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And then we see verse 18, there's a for- connecting it to the entire passage of verse 13 through 17, but I think specifically pointing us back to saying, look, this is how good is accomplished. In fact, this is how the greatest good was accomplished. He says in verse 18, For Christ also, what? Suffered. Once for sin." the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Peter reminds us as pilgrims who are facing a hard path, a path of suffering, a path of rejection, a path of mocking. He reminds us That instead of complaining, instead of looking to somehow redeem something out of it through our own efforts, he points us to the greatest good done by Christ on our behalf. And so, as we search in a world that hates us for good, Peter reminds us that the greatest good a pilgrim can find is in the gracious work of Christ for us want us to see three things about this greatest good. And the first is that the greatest good is accomplished by Christ. The greatest good is accomplished by Christ. Now again, when he points us back in verse 17, and, and we, we look at it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil, and then he gives us this example of Christ for Christ. Also suffered. Peter reminds us that our hope in suffering is found not even in enduring the suffering ourselves, but in Christ who suffered on our behalf. It is a hope that is found in Jesus Christ. And our hope, our our, our, our hope for all the things that we face in life is found in no other object but him. It's important for us to note that Peter does not say, for Paul suffered or for other believers who have suffered or, or you have even suffered. He points them to the fact, the one hope that we have in a world gone mad, and it is Jesus Christ alone. Now, we live in a world that wants to pull that idea away from us. They want us to see Goodness and humanity. They want us to, to find it in other people or, or most often in ourselves. There's a campaign I've seen. I've seen different signs of it out and around. And it says, believe there is good. And then it has highlighted, be the good. And it's a call for us to treat our neighbors with kindness. It's a call for us to, to treat each other with respect. And listen. Listen. That's what we should be doing, absolutely. But when we do that apart from knowing the goodness of Christ, we don't find any goodness there at all. We see, first of all, that this greatest good accomplished by Christ is accomplished by His suffering for sin. Notice what he says, For Christ also suffered once for sin. Sin. Now, how can there be a better way of suffering that brings about good? And it is found in what Christ has done for us. Now, remember, what did David say? Who will show us some good? And his response was, Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Notice what Paul says about Jesus in 2 Corinthians 4 6. God, Who spoke light out of darkness, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God where? In the face of Jesus Christ. Paul is pointing us to the reality that, as David has said, goodness is found in the face of God, and where is the face of God most clearly perceived for the believer? In Jesus Christ. So what does Jesus, the glory of God, what what do we see when we look at that? And this is what Peter points us to recognize. We see it first and foremost in the redemption that Christ brings for us. And it begins with his suffering once for sins. I think it's important to note that Peter emphasizes that he suffered once for sins. His suffering was final. His suffering for sin was completely different than any other suffering for sin experienced by anything, man or anything else in all creation. The word that Peter uses here for once, it has a, the idea of a single event, a single occurrence, or that which is decisively unique. In other words, what Peter is saying is Christ suffered and he is the only one who has suffered in a way to bring about salvation. The writer of Hebrews highlights this in Hebrews chapter 9. He talks about how Christ has entered not into the tabernacle, which was made by hands, not into holy places made with hands, which are just copies of the heavenly throne room, but Christ has entered into heaven itself to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And then he says he doesn't do this repeatedly as the high priest who enters into the holy places every year with blood that's not his own. And then he says because if if that was the case, he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But here's what has happened. And I like how he says it, but as it is, or this is the reality, we can have all sorts of beliefs, we can have all sorts of ideas, but they can be counter to what reality is. What is reality? Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do what? And I love this, to put away sin by the sacrifice of, of himself. There is no other suffering. There is no other suffering for sin that is effective. Only Christ could provide the suffering that is necessary. Now, this is important for us to recognize because sometimes we think that we suffer, we can do things to somehow take care of our sin that is effective. We think it's, it's maybe, well, I sacrifice a little bit of time on Sunday mornings. I sacrifice financially to give to the church. I, I, I deny myself certain things. And we, and we look at these things as sort of ways of us putting sin aside. But here's the reality. Can we ever put a sin aside? Only one can. And that is Jesus Christ. And praise God, He has put away sin through the sacrifice of Himself. He did this once. And so this is a call for us. Listen, the call of the gospel, the call of Scripture is to stop saving yourself and look to Christ who alone can save you. He is the only one who suffered once. But then we see that this is accomplished through Christ's Exchange. Notice what he says here. He suffered once for sins. It's even more amazing to see that the suffering of Christ is not just final, but the reason for his suffering is because of sin. Now, we who've grown up in the church, we who have heard the gospel for many, many years, or or even in America where this... Type of terminology is very commonplace. We don't catch the the almost offense in that statement. Christ, who is God incarnate, suffered why? For sin. How can the holy, righteous, completely perfect God suffer for sin? And that's where we recognize what he says in this exchange. We have Christ suffering. He is the righteous, and he's suffering for who? The unrighteous. Jesus suffered for sins, but he did not commit any sins. Not for lack of temptation, he was tempted in every point like as we are, but what makes Him different? He was without sin. And so why does Christ suffer for sins that He did not commit? And here we see Peter focusing on the heart of the gospel. The righteous for the unrighteous. We have to recognize that God's justice demands a penalty for sin. God is not a God who can just simply overlook sin. In the same way that if there were a murderer brought before a judge and that judge were to say, ah, we're just going to overlook what you've done, would we call that judge just? No. And so in the same way, we who have sinned, God can't just overlook it it's not that his grace or his mercy can just sort of overwhelm his justice he's a god that we talk about in theological terms who is simple he is perfectly just and perfectly gracious and perfectly merciful and it's not that one is greater than the other So how is this done? And this happens because Christ, the Righteous One, comes in our place, exchanges places for us, and He who is righteous is treated as though He is unrighteous. And He suffers for our sins. For God's justice to be satisfied, the Righteous One suffered in the place of the unrighteous. As Paul says in Corinthians, he was made to be sin for us who knew no sin. Now this should floor you. This is how God is able to have mercy and grace upon us. Not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done. He has satisfied the demands of justice by suffering for the unrighteous, for you. I think it's important for us to stop here for a second and and really meditate on that truth. It's just a few words in Peter, the righteous for the unrighteous. And again, we're so used to hearing that terminology that it becomes cold and dead to us. Every sinful deed you have committed, if you are in Christ, Christ suffered for it. Every single one. Every errant thought, every sinful action, every heart attitude, every single one. The righteous one exchanged places with your unrighteousness. In fact, even the good, the thing worth fighting for that Sam speaks of, that we look into ourselves, that we do for our own glory and not the glory of God, even that good is an unrighteousness that Christ suffered for our sakes for. the one worthy of all glory, He takes unrighteousness upon Himself, made to be sin for us, and He suffers for our sins. We've grown cold to these words. they become old hat. They've become Christianese they should cause us to tremble, to fall on our knees in awe and wonder at the wondrous love of God for us. Jesus suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. But there was a purpose in this suffering. And we see that in the next phrase of verse 18. He does this for what purpose? There are many purposes here, and the greatest purpose we know is that it displays the magnificent glory of God in no other way. But Peter here points to one reason that is glorious. He suffers so that he could what? Bring us to God. This greatest good that is accomplished by Christ alone through his suffering for sin and his exchange of our righteousness, of his righteousness for our unrighteousness, then we see, secondly, it brings reconciliation. It is not just that Christ's suffering brings um, relief from the punishment of sin. Well, that's a wondrous and glorious hope, that only gets us halfway. Yes, God is able to be merciful to us and to withhold His wrath because Christ has satisfied that. But for us to come before God, something else must be given. And we must have God's grace born in our hearts through Jesus Christ. We need more than just mercy. We need grace and so while Christ suffers for our righteousness we our unrighteousness we are bestowed his righteousness so that we can come before god it's interesting the terminology that he uses here to bring us before god or to be presented before god Paul speaks of this throughout the book of Acts. There's this concept or this idea of placing us before the grace of God. He mentions it to the Ephesians elders in Acts chapter 20. He says, I commend you, or I place you before God and the word of His what? Grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. This grace that is given to us is not just the, the satisfaction of the wrath of God, but it is the positive alien righteousness of Christ. It's not our righteousness. You do not stand before God on your righteousness. If that was our hope, there would be no hope. But we stand because Christ who was made for our sake sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Do, do you understand when David says, lift up the light of your countenance upon us, you know, I want to see good, it's in God's face. Do you realize that that goodness, as we turn to Christ by faith, that righteousness is now ours? This is where there is true goodness in this world, not in ourselves, but in what Christ has done on our behalf. So God graciously provides us with a righteousness that is not our own. This is why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 we have redemption through the blood of Christ, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he what? And I love this term. He lavished upon us. He lavished it upon us. When I was on vacation, we went down to South Carolina, and I got to go to one of my favorite restaurants, Zaxby's. And I was lavished with chicken fingers. I mean, it was, it was just... See, my parents live like three minutes away from Zaxby's, and that's a bad thing. And so I can just, oh, Honor, we're going back to my parents' house. I'll just stop by and get some Zaxby's. And, and they, have you ever seen how, like this big basket full of, of chicken? Well, you guys haven't. Some of you have been to Zaxby's. Most of you haven't. They have this giant basket just filled with chicken fingers. The only thing that gets, comes close to that is when you get a big platter of Chick-fil-A nuggets, all right? That is a lavish nuggets that you get there. And see, what's amazing is when I go there, I know that I can draw from that basket of chicken fingers and have more than enough. It's a lavish gift. Now, this is a silly illustration, but my goodness, the grace of God in Jesus Christ is lavish. We have the righteousness of God given to us by His grace. And so that reconciliation that comes through God's grace, that brings us to God. Grace brings us to God. Mercy removes God's wrath. Grace brings us to God. Christ makes us acceptable through His righteousness. The result of the greatest act of good accomplished through the greatest act of evil the suffering of Christ brought about through humanity, it brings us reconciliation to God. Paul actually takes up this theme in Romans chapter 5. He speaks about how when we are justified by faith, trusting in Christ, united to Him by faith, there's something that we possess. What is that? Peace with God. And that peace with God comes through and this is so important. Does it come through our actions of righteousness? It comes through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is this peace with God that we have that through Him, through Christ, we have also obtained access by faith, into this grace in which we what, stand. We stand in it. And so we rejoice. In hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our what? In our sufferings. Do you see how Paul is doing what Peter is doing? Connecting the purpose of suffering with the redemption that Christ has brought about? We rejoice in our sufferings. You say, that doesn't make sense. We don't rejoice in suffering. We do when we recognize that suffering brought about the greatest good that has ever been accomplished. We know that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. We stand in the grace of God. But then we see the final phrase in verse 18 Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And then Paul puts, or Peter puts in some more specifics. He speaks about how Christ was put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit. Now, we're about to enter a section of 1 Peter that is very difficult to interpret, and it sort of begins in this passage. The, Greek, the underlying original language is difficult to wade through. There are things that are said here that we can easily get lost, and you know, as an expository preacher, I was sort of like, man, why don't I just skip over this section and move on to chapter 4? But we're not going to do that but we're not going to get there today because I just got back from vacation. I was not ready to wade into some of the deep stuff that we're going to hit in the next couple of weeks. But Peter is putting in an emphasis on death in the flesh and life in the Spirit. And that's going to bear in to some of our discussions in the next couple weeks. But here I think it's important for us to note why he's doing this and why this is important. Why is it important that Christ died in the flesh and why is it important that he received life In the Spirit. And I think it's important because he shows us that this greatest good, which brings about mercy from God as Christ takes our wrath, grace in being reconciled to God and being brought to Him, the final thing that this greatest good brings about is transformation. And we see that in the death and life of Jesus Christ. Notice what he says. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. We see, first of all, that this transformation that is brought by Christ is brought through death. It's brought through death. Christ's suffering was a means to death. He suffered to the point of, of death. Now, there are some, and I think it's actually become a little bit more popular in certain scholarly circles to, to talk about what's called the fainting theory about Christ. That Christ, he just suffered so much that he sort of fainted, but he didn't really die. If, if that is the case, then the entirety of the New Testament is turned on its head. There's no hope unless Christ truly died. And not just for the sense that He takes away the punishment for sin. The wages of sin is death. But it has an everyday effect on our lives as well. Again, Christ's suffering was a means to death. He provides the final payment for sins. And this is why Paul says in Romans 7, 24, he speaks about how He is a wretched man Because he continues to sin, because in his old man, in his flesh, no good thing resides. So he cries out, who will deliver me from the body of death? And what's the answer? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So I then myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh... Now notice, that's important. With my flesh... I serve the law of sin. What does Peter say? Christ was put to death in the what? In the flesh. In his flesh he serves the law of sin. And then notice the great hope. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, those words, in Christ Jesus, that could be the definition of what it is to be a Christian. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means to be in Jesus Christ. We're united to Him by faith. And there's a mystical union that we have. And I don't have the time to hash out that glorious truth, but I think it's a truth that has often been neglected in the church. We are united to Christ. Now that means something for our everyday lives. And that's what we're going to look at here. And that's why Peter points about the death in the flesh and life In the spirit. Next week we're going to begin unpacking again some of these these things later on in this passage, but but notice the point that Peter says. He's put to death in the flesh. And he's given new life in the spirit what we're going to find is that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, it is not just simply given to us so that we can have hope beyond physical death and live an eternal life in heaven. That's so often, I think, where our minds go. Death means I don't have to deal with death. Christ is taking care of that. Life means I get to live in heaven and walk on streets of gold. And and those are the things that we typically think of as the immediate applications of those truths. But the New Testament goes deeper. Notice what Paul says in Romans chapter 6. He says, he makes this question in Romans chapter 6, verse 2 How can we who died to sin still what? Live in it now. Now here's the question: When did we die to sin? Notice Paul is just making this statement: We've died to sin. Well, when did that happen? And Paul shows us in later on that we have been united with Christ in a death like His. He goes on and says, "We know that our old self was what crucified." With him, so that to bring about the fact that the body of sin might be brought to what? Nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. You understand that in Christ's death in the flesh, he frees us from the slave master of sin. By killing the old man. Our old master is dead. It's been crucified with Christ. And so Paul says in Romans 8, God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of what? Sinful flesh. And for sin, what does He do with sin? He condemns it in what? The flesh of Christ. Again, notice what Peter says. Christ was put to death in the what? In the flesh. They're talking about the same thing here. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. As the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 2, 14-15, we the children share in what? Flesh and blood. So what did Christ partake of? the same things, flesh and blood, so that through, what? Death in the flesh, we can add, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all who were subject to lifelong slavery. Christ's death in the flesh means That you are dead to sin. In fact, this is what Paul says in Romans 6. So what's the the conclusion? Christ died in the flesh. So what must we consider ourselves? We are what to sin? What's our relationship to sin? Dead to it. We are dead to sin. Now here's, here's what I want you to do. Think back to this last week. The last two weeks. Last month. Last year. Are you acting like that? Are you living out the reality that Christ, who Peter points out, died in the flesh? Satisfying the, the righteous requirement of God's justice, but also killing death in your flesh. Do you act like it? Notice Paul says, is, is it an option for us to consider ourselves dead to sin? No, we must do it. And so, you know, we have this tendency when we, when we come in and we think about the death of Christ... We have a tendency to focus on his suffering, the the physical torment of that, and, and everything that was involved in that. And listen, that's all a wonderful thing. But how often do we consider when we think about the death of Christ that it means that I'm dead to sin now. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. So I must then put to death. What is earthly in me? And then he gives a list of things sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire. And those are all the ones we're like, oh, yeah, I'm a good Christian. I don't involve myself in those things. But then he hits us with the last one and covetousness, which is what? Idolatry. We're dead to these things, they've been crucified. With Christ. So the next time we have communion here, first Sunday in October, we'll have a time to remember the body and the blood of Christ, the body which was crushed, the blood which was shed. And it is an emotional time for us, as it should be. It's a time for us to mourn over sin. But it's also a time for us to look and think, why did Christ die for sin? He did it to take away the wrath of God, but He also did it so that we might be dead to sin. Transformation through death. That means that when you're tempted this afternoon, tomorrow morning, this week, Consider yourself dead to that temptation, to that sin. You're dead to it. You can say no. And that brings about transformation in our lives through the death of Christ. But not only does it bring transformation through death, there's also transformation through the resurrection. Christ died in the flesh, being put to death in the flesh, but that's not the end of the story, praise God. He was was made alive in the Spirit. And there is transformation brought about through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just as we have died to sin, we now are alive to have new life in Christ. We were buried therefore with Him by baptism in death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too... And then notice, He doesn't say might also one day be raised from death. I think that's so often what we think. Christ is resurrected so that when I die I will be raised. That's not what Paul says here. He says he we have this hope so that we might what? walk in newness of life. When? Now. The resurrection has a transformative effect on our everyday lives now. That's what Paul is saying. Now, yes, it's a wonderful hope that death has no sting and that we will one day be raised to life everlasting in Christ. But the resurrection should affect your everyday life right now. You should be walking in newness of life. So in this passage, Paul's given us two very clear commandments. Consider ourselves dead to sin and walk in newness of life. How can we do that? Because Jesus Christ died in the flesh and was made alive in the spirit. Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that we're debtors, not to the flesh, not to live according to the flesh, because if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but instead we're called to live by the spirit, by which we put to, dead, put to death the deeds of the body, and then we get to what? You realize you're not truly living unless you're living in the resurrection life Christ has accomplished for you. As I said at the beginning of Romans 8, the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So how does resurrection life from the Spirit transform us? How does what Peter is pointing us to, that Christ was put to death in the flesh and made alive in the Spirit, how does that affect our everyday lives? Look at what he says. Look, those who live according to the flesh, they set their minds where? On the things of the flesh. And what have we just seen? Christ died in the flesh so that we would die to the flesh. But instead, we need to live according to what? Now this begins by understanding that the Christian life is fully dependent on the grace of God. God has given us His Spirit so that we would live new resurrection life. How do we do that? Well, we set our minds where? On the things of the Spirit. Because if we set our mind on the flesh, that's what? Death. But if we set our mind on the Spirit, we have what? Life and peace. David cried out, who will show us some good? I think that comes from a heart that is not feeling life and certainly doesn't have peace. And as pilgrims, Peter has told us in the previous passages, look, you're going to suffer for righteousness' sake. People are going to say all manner of evil against you falsely for the sake of Christ. You're going to be asked about why you are continuing, even though you're being treated so poorly. And that you're going to be tempted to think, man, I wish there was something good in this world. And so what does Peter point us to? He says, you know what? You have the greatest good in Jesus Christ. It is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. And the greatest example is the greatest good that has ever been done. For Christ also suffered for sins, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the greatest good seen in Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask today that we would live lives that are dead to sin and alive to you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Father, may you by your grace set our minds to reject thinking about the things of the flesh, which is dead, but to look and think about the things of the Spirit, which has brought life to Christ and which brings new life to us. Father, work by your Spirit as only you can. We pray this in Christ's name.